This morning we're going to turn in the Word of God to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9. Many of you may have just read this in the last day or so. If you're on the Robert Murray McShane reading schedule. But I want us to read that segment from verse 13 through verse 27. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them, and straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came? Into the fire. And Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried, and rent him sore, and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and lifted him up, and he arose. We'll end our reading there. We trust the Lord will bless us as we have been in his word for his name's sake. This morning I want us to think particularly on the word do anything. I want us to think on that this morning particularly and may it be used of the Lord to bless and instruct our hearts. Before we go any further, let's just ask the Lord to meet with us in the word. Father, now we pray that you will bless this time. Bless us with the ministering of the Spirit of God. 
We pray that you will use the word as a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. We pray that you will allow it to be that which is used of thee to instruct us in the way that thou wouldst have us to think, the way to go on with thyself. Lord, we pray for a ministry in our time this morning, a ministry of the word by the Spirit of God. Lord, now I pray that you will help me as thy servant. I pray that you will direct thought and word all together. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of which we read is one of stark contrasts. The Lord had just returned from the Mount of Transfiguration in which his disciples had beheld his unspeakable glory and heard the voice of the Father. It was a time of shining glory of utter holiness. And then they come to the foot of the mount, and a multitude wait for them, among which is a man with a various, very serious matter. Here is the opposite of the glory that was seen previously. It is a moment when the darkness of evil shows itself in the strongest possible terms. There is the attack of an apparent ongoing victory by the devil over the life of a poor lad and through him also the life of the man that approaches Christ. Further, there has been the very obvious and distressing failure on the part of the disciples to alleviate the problem. And beyond that, scoffers are at hand, mocking, and the failure that is seen there in that moment has turned into, in the eyes of many, a comedy. The man, though being earnest, brings himself to the feet of the Lord Jesus, and offers words, yes, that we would have to say were words of frustration, words of fear, words of faithfulness. What is a sad his words are in essence a prayer. A prayer that is one of faithlessness, as it were. And here is a sad reality. That prayer can often be offered that is not at all to faith, but a revelation of the absence of such. This is significant because it reveals that faithless man, far from revering and resting in the power of God, can doubt that power, not only in the face of adversity, but also in the face of God himself. This is not an uncommon situation. This his faithlessness in prayer is one that is common. If you will, of a chronic problem. Lord, if thou canst. How many times have you and I even said those words before the face of God? Lord, if thou canst. And I say here, 
is the antithesis of faith. Not fear or unbelief merely, but doubt that the Lord is able to do as he has said. If thou canst, what are you saying when you use those words? Doubt. You're saying to the Lord, I doubt you. You may be able to help me, but I have my doubts about the situation. So I want us to think on this. I say we have a pointed lesson here on the difference between the Lord's proper prayer and our perspective. So I want us to think on that. I'm going to begin by looking at our perspective. Our perspective on prayer and the need of prayer, the power of prayer, the appropriateness of prayer. I want us to think on this truth and I want us to understand right from the start that when we come to God in prayer, we in our natural man oftentimes never stop to contemplate what God tells us in Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9. You say, well, what's that say? The Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We don't contemplate that. We tend to come to the Lord in our natural reason. We come to the Lord bearing faithlessness for a couple of reasons. First, I will point this out as a reason. We come to the Lord... Not thinking that he is unable to help us, the problem lies elsewhere. We come to the Lord, our perspective is, first, that Christ is hindered by that which cannot be put right. That's the way we oftentimes look at the matter. That's perhaps what was in this man's mind here. This was a situation where he brings his son... There was supposed to be power in the name of the Lord Jesus. The disciples evidently were doing as they had been instructed, but yet there was not a remedy. So perhaps the conclusion was, I'm facing a situation that cannot be put right. There's something here that hindered it. There's something that's greater than the name of the Lord Jesus involved here. We come to the Lord often with false belief in our hearts. That our hearts and our situation are such that cannot be put right. That is, that we believe that sin is an insurmountable issue. We tend to believe that the ugliness and the vileness of sin is so repugnant that any association with our sinful hearts is unthinkable by God. You have gone to party too much that you I've dealt with you on this issue time and time again yet here you are in the same place you are full of sin you are full of unbelief therefore there is a hindrance there is something that cannot be put right because the situation that you face in your heart that you're guilty of is worse than that we tend to think that the Lord is unable to make things right You say, unable? Yes, sir. Yes, and here's the reason why I say that. Though we would say, and though we would defend that our God is omnipotent, we tend to think that he is being prevented by his holiness. I want you to think about this. God is prevented 
by His holiness from helping us. Our sin is there. God would like to help us, but He sees sin. He cannot tolerate sin, so He is prevented from helping us. And so we tend to think that rather than being convinced that God has bound himself to also make us holy. Again, we declare that there is omnipotence with God, but turn around and declare that God is not omnipotent. You understand what I'm saying there? God is omnipotent, but he's not omnipotent. That's what we say. When we say our God is hindered, prevented by our sin from helping us, doing for us what we need, forgiving our sins, washing us clean, stepping into our situation, remedying that which we face. If God, because he sees our sins, is prevented, then God is not omnipotent. That's what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. And I will tell you, this has always been the case. This conclusion operating on this conclusion has always been the case with idolatry and false religion. You can name whichever religion you want to out there. This is a premise that is being operated on. And because of this, the Lord Jesus is always being insufficient for the need. Christ is not sufficient because of this one truth. God is not sufficient, though we say. So in addition to the Lord Jesus, what we need to have is self-reform or self-chastisement. These are necessary steps to come to God. Nobody believes that. Let me tell you about that's the whole, whole subject. That's the whole doctrine of penance. That Christ is not omnipotent to deal with sins. There must The one the problem is when we start ta- taking into our minds this idea well I can help the matter by my self chastisement we never get to a point where the chastisement seems enough the reason it's because it isn't your heart doesn't lie to you in that instance saying well you're just not that your chastisement is not, it's not enough. You can't do enough to chasten yourself to make the situation different. Let me just put it to you this way. That was, you remember, the life of Martin Luther. That was the plague of his soul because he tried and tried and tried and tried to chasten himself, to reform himself, to do that which would finally bring him into the place of peace with God based on his self-denunciation, his self, even self-flagellation. He could not be hardened enough on himself to satisfy his guilt. It wasn't possible. And so he goes to others, and the others that he went to suggested uh, counsel that also proved to be another failure Not only was that the failure, but the thought was, Brother Martin, maybe you should introduce into your thinking some human works along with your self-condemnation and your self-chastisement. Maybe you should do some other things along with those to supplement your chastisement of self. 
course, you could read all the different things that Martin Luther went on to do to try to add to his condemnation of self. And then, of course, the Lord brings him to the place where he reads those words from Romans chapter 5. The just shall live by faith. The just live by faith. It's not by all these attending things. Jesus is enough. His blood is enough. The Lord is not one who is hindered by my guilt and my shame and sin. They're still bounded. Grace did much more abound. So I say that is one thing in our thinking. We tend to think along as perhaps this man did on this day when he saw the Lord Jesus that Christ is hindered by that which cannot be put right. The second thing is that perhaps we include this, that Christ is unwilling because of our unworthiness. It's not just a matter that he can't because he sees sin and God cannot tolerate sin. It's a matter now he sees our unworthiness and he esteems us. He looks at us in the balances, if you will, and he says, you're not worthy. Again, this is our perspective. We think that because we have been foolish, rebellious, carnal, the Lord is intensely grieved. And though he is gracious, because of the malignity of our sin, he is unwilling to help us. The failure on our part is just too great. You are not worthy. Well, let me just take a step back. For any man who says to the Lord, I know you're not going to help me because I'm not worthy, that makes absolutely no sense. No sense. Because, frankly, honestly, you may not want to hear it, but there is never a time, even at your best, there is never a time in which the Lord does not see your failure. You're never worthy. <laughs> you are never, ever worthy. Never. All we are, all you will ever be, while you breathe, all you will ever be is unworthy. But our hope is not in that. Our hope is not that we are, will ever be made worthy or seen worthy, or maybe the Lord will impute a sense of worthiness to our hearts. No, the Lord imputes righteousness. He doesn't impute emotions. He doesn't bring us to the place where we feel, oh, I feel worthy. Forget that. The Holy Spirit is not in you to make you feel good about yourself. The only one who is worthy is the Lord Jesus. And our faith is not in that estimation of ourselves. Our faith is in the estimation of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Subject on worthiness. When the saw that little man who was a tax collector, of a criminal, he was. He was a criminal, he was a thief, he was a defrauder, he was an embezzler. But did the Lord Jesus know all these things about this little man before he even saw him? Well, my conclusion would be this. When the Lord Jesus saw him, did the Lord have to nudge somebody and say, hey, what's that guy's name? 
See this man up in the tree? That's an unusual sight. What was his name? What did he say? Right off the bat, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm supposed to go to your house today. He knew all about Zacchaeus, didn't he? Was Zacchaeus worthy when the Lord Jesus met with him and went with him to his house, or was he unworthy? When the Lord Jesus came to Samaria, and he sits down on the side of a well, and here comes a woman to draw water. You know the incident? Did the Lord Jesus see her unworthiness, or was that having to be revealed to him? You know the answer. He knew all about this woman because she went away and told all those in the city, let me have you come and see a man who told me all things ever, so what, ever that I did. The Lord Jesus knows all about you. He sees your failure, but it's not your worthiness that is the determining factor of whether he's going to help because you're nothing but unworthy. Let me ask you another question. Is it holy? context a inappropriate and wrongful view of the holiness of God let me put it to you let me ask you a question is it holy for the Lord to show compassion on and mercy and go to sinners in need or is it more holy Because God cannot tolerate sin for the Lord to withhold himself and walk on the other side as did the Pharisee and the Levite. What's the answer to that question? You say, well, the Lord Jesus teaches us in that parable how he would have us act. Yes, the holiness of God is not suspended, nor is it denied because the Lord Jesus deals with sinners. That is the lie of the devil. The holiness of God, though, works that sinners are not left sinners. But his help draws and changes. So our, our conclusions oftentimes, first, is that the Lord Jesus is hindered by that which cannot be put right. Secondly, that Christ is unwilling because of our unworthiness. And then third, we oftentimes conclude that Christ is held back because of other conditions. We tend to think something like this. Other, other, under other circumstances, the Lord would help me. But not so now. There's something about what I'm facing now. Oh, this one's different. Let me ask you this. Can you possibly imagine any particular dilemma or failure in the human existence that hasn't been seen a million times before in the course of history. Name whatever dilemma you want to say. It's been seen multiple, multiple, multiple times. So what makes you think that yours is so dire, so distressing, so incredibly out of the ordinary that the Lord can't help you in that situation? But we tend to think, well, if circumstances were different, what are you really saying when you, ask, when you say that? I think it's something like this. We want to have a good feeling about ourselves that will make the Lord want to help. No. The truth is when we feel good about ourselves, we do not even come to the Lord. 
Do you understand that as a rule? If you feel good about yourself, you're not going to go to the Lord. For we feel that we do not need him in such moments. So the basic cause for the perspective is, is I do not feel hopeful about this circumstance. Therefore, the Lord will not either. I said this is a reason. I'm going to issue another reason to you why we tend to think this way, although I'm not going to embellish it. I'm just going to simply say that also your nature, your fallen nature also is against you in this. We are by nature idolaters. Did you know that about yourself? By nature, as a fallen man, you are an idolater. An idolater is one who insists on seeing in concrete, visible terms that which is invisible. I must see with my eyes, handle with my hands, that which is invisible. And when I do, I call it my God. Let me say this. Faith is diametrically opposed to our fallen nature. Faith is the opposite of this. Where we trust in that which we do not see over that which we do see. But we insist on seeing our help. That is our perspective. Now, I want us to think about the Lord's perspective in all this. How does the Lord see the whole situation? Well, let me ask you a question here to start on this. Does the Lord see things as I do at all? I mean, is there anything that I look at and see and judge and conjecture and esteem? Are my thoughts like the Lord's? Is there anything that the Lord says, yeah, you're, you're right on this? Well, again, I want us to go back to the words of Isaiah 55. The way he thinks and sees is not at all as we think. I want you to keep that in your mind. How God thinks, his thoughts are not at all like your thoughts. Now, that truth can and should guide our hearts. Let me explain to you what I'm saying. My understanding, my thoughts, my wisdom is all about self. That's the framework for my thinking. That's the courtroom of my thinking. That's the end of my thinking. Self. God and his thinking is considering on the basis of complete knowledge of all things. That is, his eternal purpose eternally, his covenant, his people. You and I, our thoughts are like a thimble full of thought. God's thought and perspective is like the Pacific Ocean. There's no. He sees all. He understands all. And he has in his thinking all of his purposes, all the knowledge of all things that ever have been and ever will be. He has a knowledge of the totality of our sin and sees our heart for what it is. He knows all things. His thinking cannot even be compared in any shape or form to our thinking. We think about what's ever in our little thimble. 
The Lord sees all things. He knows all things. And controls all things. And he has a will. Concerning the praying of his people. And his perspective. What he wants to see. Is a right estimation. Of himself by faith. In the prayers of his people. He wants his people to. By faith. Consider him in prayer. And not themselves. Let me ask you a question. It says that. The man came to the disciples. And the disciples could not. Cast out the devil. Does that mean then that there is a type of devil or demon that was out there that could not have been dealt with by the disciples? The answer is no. I believe the disciples could have cast this out. But the point that the Lord Jesus is making, you men out of presumption and out of fleshly went about this saying, well, here's the formula. We're going to apply the formula. Well, it didn't work. Why? Because the Lord Jesus says, there is, because this one is a particularly vicious one, you must then seek God. There was having to be prayer and fasting. Who would have prayed and fasted? Would it have been the Lord Jesus that needed to pray and fast? No, of course not. Then who? The disciples. You guys did not do that the face of God, you faithless and you faithless generation. You did not do what was the work of faith, therefore you were powerless. There's the point. So I will <coughs> say this. The Lord's perspective when it comes to answering prayer and doing a work amongst us the condition of answer prayers lies not in sovereignty, but in surrender. It lies not in sovereignty, but in surrender. The name of Jesus was a powerful, powerful tool that should have been rightly used by the disciples, but was not because their hearts were not in surrender by faith to God as they use that name. You say surrender. What do you mean? Why why surrender? What are you talking about? Let me say this. Belief or is a resting of the heart on what has been revealed and what is known to be true of God. It is a resting on what has been revealed and known to be true of God. And there's a very strong element of will here. You surrender, you trust in the will and what you know about God. Well, but you don't understand. If I prayed and God was answering my prayer, then I would see this happen whatever this happens to be. Let me say that if you talk like that, if that's your response to prayer or the lack of seeing the answer to prayer, that is injecting the will and understanding of man into the place of the... I 
should have had what I wanted done. Now that was what was right. That was what was wise. That was what was really the best thing. God and whatever he concludes, that was not really needed. What was needed is what I thought. That's what you're doing when you say, well, if God had really been answering my prayers, I would have seen this. You're pushing the reasoning of God aside. Now let me say this. We can ask of God. Yes, we can come to God and we can make our petitions. And it is right and wise to do so. But at the same time, there is to bow to absolute wisdom. We need to bow to thinking of God. What Let me give you a bit of an illustration. I, I wish I could have thought of something that was more detailed. Uh, sometimes the more detail you have, the more concrete the illustration. But it, think about it with me like this. If a lad comes to his father and asks for something, he asks, oftentimes, young people who haven't had much experience, they ask, seeing the immediate want and circumstance. But oftentimes, you will have a situation where a father knows that there are a number of things in the work that will affect the circumstance. And if the lad would only wait and follow his father's instructions, he will end up with a far better answer than what he wanted by asking. Times. We can come to God and we can say, I want you to do this. But God says, but you don't understand all the other things that are going into what I'm doing at the moment. You don't understand all the things that are behind the scene here. You don't understand what I'm ultimately planning to give you, the good thing that you will know. You can ask and have it now, like the prodigal son says, I have what I will have now. Well, that can be done. But if he had, just imagine what would have been the pleasure, the joy, the blessing of the prodigal son if he had just simply waited and done what was right. Sometimes you and I demand of our God that he answer in the way we want. But the whole thing is, the Lord said, no, I'm not going to do that because I've got, you don't see everything. I will do so much better. It is our place to bow to the wisdom of God. And I will say this, true faith contains a repudiation. Oh, let me emphasize this. True faith contains a repudiation of the living and anything else but the revealed truth and purpose of God. Isn't that what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 are all about? That's what the Lord wants to see. He wants to see a surrender of the heart to His will rather than just saying, I will see God work and I will have it You have wanted it this way, but you're a faithless generation. Second, from the Lord's perspective, the condition of answered prayer lies not in measuring God by ourselves. We are to never measure God by ourselves. You know, oftentimes, and we are so guilty of this, and you say, no, not me. I say, then you better take a better look at yourself. You and I often ascribe to God our own judgments, 
prejudices and feelings. If I feel this way about me and my situation, God must see it that way too. I say that's completely wrong. How you see your situation, how you see yourself, is not at all how God sees things. Let me ask you this. How many times did David size up a situation and determine the outcome? Can you think of even one? How about, I'm sure I'm going to uh, perish by the hand of Saul one day. How many of things that were like that? David was a man who did that a lot. But it did not turn out that way for him at all, did it? How many times did Jacob go through that? Here's the situation. I just know it's going to turn out like this. My, my wife and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. Maybe yesterday. day before. I don't know. Jacob escapes from Laban. He's sure that Laban would do him harm. Was Laban going to do him harm? Laban could not do him harm. Because the God of Jacob was keeping Jacob. But here comes Jacob and he he makes his way back towards uh, the land of Canaan. And of course, he is completely assured because he did his brother Esau out of the birthright and out of the blessing that Esau, because Esau said, I'm going to kill him. That someday, uh, when he goes back, that Esau is going to make that good. Especially when he hears that here comes Esau with 400 men. Now, something about that ought to tell you Jacob's thinking was off, and I'll explain what I mean in just a moment. So here comes Jacob, and the Lord has said, if you will serve me, when was that? Way back before uh, he even went to Padanaram, when he had his time there in the place of Bethel, where he mounted the stones, poured the oil, if thou wilt bring me back to this place, thou shalt be my God. The Lord brings him back. Who? God was going to be his God. But he's concluded, I'm going to perish by Esau. And you have all the different things that go on with that. He wrestles. He sees a, a number of angels. Uh, he wrestles with God that blesses him. All these things that are telling him, God is with you. No, I'm not. I'm, no. Break up the company into three ranks. And put the sheep in the front. And then put the, you know, put Leah and her children in the middle. And then. Uh, Rachel and Benjamin and Joseph in the back and uh, and I'll go out front and so what happens what happens here comes Esau 400 men they're all growling snarling they're all snapping with their teeth they're waving their swords yes sir what happens Jacob sees Esau and Esau sees Jacob and they just run over and they grasp each other and they pull each other to themselves and they're just weeping on each other's shoulders and they're so glad to see each other and they just can't get enough of each other and Esau looks at Jacob and says what is all this and Jacob says this is what the Lord's blessed me with and he said, well, what was all this other stuff you drove on? And he said, well, he said, this was a present for my Lord Esau. He said, well, I don't, I've got enough. Wait a minute. Hold it. I've got enough. What does that mean? That the whole time that Jacob was off in Padan, uh, over in Padanaram with Laban, worrying, stewing, assured that he would not see Jacob or see Esau in kindness, the Lord was adding to Esau. So that Esau, when he comes, 
to see Jacob, says to him, you keep what you've got. I've got enough. In other words, you know all that stuff that you supposedly took away from me? I've got more than that myself now. I have 400 servants. You you see what I'm saying? There may be a few of his friends. There may have been a few of the acquaintances of the town they lived in, but basically, he had all these men at his uh, his control. Here he comes. He had a complete host with him. He was a rich man already. It didn't matter what Jacob had done. The whole issue, perhaps, was forgotten, and here they are, brothers weeping on each other's shoulders. My point to you is this. You and I see things oftentimes like David or like Jacob. And we don't consider the fact that our God is working things that we have no idea what he's doing. Why he's doing it, where he's doing it, what the ultimate end of it's going to be. We don't have any of that in our heads. All we've got is, I'm going to perish by the hand of Saul one day. And I have to say, it's also kind of amazing to me that when Pharaoh asks Jacob how old he is, Jacob says, few and evil have been my days. Um, Jacob, you've got some repenting to do right now. The Lord has kept you, hasn't he? The Lord has blessed you. Now, your sons have turned out to be a bunch of hoodlums, and the Lord needs to take a dealing with them. And yeah, you've got some things to straighten out, yes, in your own household, but by and large, the Lord has blessed you. And the covenant of the Lord's promise of the one who will come from your line is still in place. God does not want us measuring him by ourselves. God does not want us thinking that the way we think is the way he thinks. That's why the Lord Jesus, when he comes, it's a desperate situation, but that was not the problem. The big problem, let me put it to you this way. The big problem of the moment there in that very dark time was not the devil plaguing the lad. The Lord Jesus, with a word, solves that. The big problem was you had people who did not understand what it meant to seek God. Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? There's the problem. That's, that was the problem. It was a problem that was in his disciples. It was a problem that saw certain proud the answering to prayer lies in coming to God in God's way so we ask the question what's that so here's my last point I want us to see the requirements we see our perspective we see the Lord's perspective and I want us to see the requirement and I would suggest to you I emphasize to you that here is not a formula for answered prayer would mean that there is something that lies within us that can affect the heart of God and undercut the all-sufficiency of Christ. So there is no such thing as a formula for answered prayer. But here you do have, though, revealed to you some things that the Lord wants to see. First, 
confess the faith that you have. There is a very wonderful lesson that you see. There is something that I don't know that in any more clear and pointed way you see submitted to our eyes and hearts than in this particular situation, the words of that father. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. He confesses. He believes. Yes, that is something the Lord wants us to say. Now, we may have to say with the man, my One that's based on a lot of knowledge. But I believe the Lord wants us to confess our faith to him. It is, and I emphasize it is proper and it is good to lay our hearts before the Lord. Psalm 62 verse 8 says, Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Psalm 42 verse 3. My tears have been my meat day and night while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? The, when I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God and with the voice of joy and praise with the multitude that kept holy day. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted? Me, hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Pour out the heart. Pour out the heart. Yes, the Lord wants his people to confess their faith in him. Lord, I believe. Although I have to say, I mourn that I believe so poorly. Yet I believe. Right. That is good. That is good to say. Second, appeal to Christ for help against unbelief. That's what this man did. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. You know, there is no shame in humbling yourself before God. There is no embarrassment for God to note the shortcoming of your faith. That is, I say, an honest confession... That opens the door to even further honest confession and realization of absolute dependence on the Lord. Good! Help thou my unbelief. You're in the right place. That is a good prayer. James 4 and 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. There is no sorrow that comes from coming to the Lord Jesus and stating things as they are. There is no sorrow in that. In fact, that in itself is an act of faith that is rewarded. You think about the woman with the issue who comes to the Lord, touches him, of course, and the Lord says, who touched me? And they question, how can you say that? The crowd's thronging you. And she, seeing the situation, comes and confesses, it was me. I thought that if I would just touch the border of your garment that I'd be made whole. And he says, okay, you confessed the faith that's in your heart. You confessed what was right and good. Be it to you as you have need. Great is your faith. Thy faith has saved thee. I say, there it is. The Lord would have us then 
to confess the faith that you do have, appeal to the, the Lord Jesus for the faith that you don't have, and then bring your case to Christ. This is very simple. Put the situation right before the Lord and ask for an answer. When I say do not determine what the answer must be, leave that with the Lord. That is faith. Lord, here is my need. I don't believe enough. Help me in my unbelief. But help me in whatever way that you see to be the wisest. That's what the Lord would have for his people to do. So I would say, including word, simply this. In Christ, seek the Lord and distrust yourself, repudiate that which has to do with just you. A simple lesson, but a very needful one. And one that we trust the Lord will bless to our hearts for his own namesake. Well, let's all pray. Father in heaven, now we pray that you'll bless the word of God. We pray that you will allow it to be that which is blessed of the spirit. That it will do in our hearts what is needful. To cause us to rest. To cause us to walk with thee in faith. Rather than in self-will. We pray that you will allow the word to do a work in our hearts that allows us truly to rejoice in the Lord. Now, Lord, we pray that you'll go with us from this time. Keep us close to thyself, we pray, as we walk through this day with thyself, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.